would you come and inhabit every word that I speak? Let not one word be amiss, but rather may these come from your heart and may they strike your people in their hearts. May it be a heart-to-heart conversation between you, our loving Father, and we, your sons and daughters. In the name of Christ, do we pray? Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. You are small but mighty, or as we joked in the prayer beforehand, or just small. (laughs) Maybe we're all just small a little bit. The jubilant, resounding call of Christmas can be summed up in two simple words, and I love this. It's in my daughter's uh, children's Bible. He's here. He's here. These 12 days of Christmas, far too short in my humble opinion, are about consummation and fulfillment. The Messiah has finally come. He's here. God himself has come to dwell with us. Light has come into the darkness. Did you hear that theme just over and over repeated in the readings? I can't think of a better cause for celebration. I can't think of a better reason for a resounding alleluia. Amen? Hallelujah. All right. Amen or alleluia. I'll take either one. Uh, light has come into the darkness. He's here. And forgive the simplicity of this, but it begs the question, well, who, who is he? Who is this he that has come? Who is this he that's here? Who is this Jesus, this light of the world? And as elementary as that sounds, we're going to start there from his birth and move forward to his adolescence. So first thing we're going to do is summarize what came before our gospel reading. I'm going to summarize Luke 2, 1 through 40. Now don't gulp. This will be a brief excursus. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Jesus as an infant and a young child. And I want to focus on one key verse from the Galatians passage that we just heard, Galatians 4.4. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That was a strong theme. He set us free, but he had to be born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. From the very beginning of his life, Jesus is fully subject to the law. God allows this. His parents raise him in the faith, and Jesus chooses it for himself as he grows up. And it goes by the numbers. And this process of being under the law, fulfilling all its requirements, marks Jesus' life from beginning to end. So when you hear what follows in just a second, think of it in those terms. Jesus' life as satisfying the law. And here's some of the evidence of that. Uh, One, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. In keeping with the law. That's the faithfulness of his parents at work. Uh, he was presented in the temple, the standard five shekels paid to redeem the firstborn son per Numbers 18.15. That was done in keeping with the law. Mary and Joseph's purification in keeping with the law. After birth, a woman was declared to be unclean for several days. This is per Leviticus 12. Joseph was the only person around for Jesus' birth, so he was probably unclean too. So the typical offering for purification was a lamb, unless you were too poor to afford the lamb, in which case you'd offer uh, like a pigeon or a dove, a small bird. And that's what uh, Mary and Joseph gave. This reiterates their poverty. They made the poor folks' offering. Although... This is funny. Uh, do you hear this dripping in irony? They can't afford a lamb, so they have to bring a pigeon or dove. Never mind the fact that they have Jesus, like the Lamb of God, with them, but yes, ironic, absolutely. Uh, four, when they're at the temple offering their meager sacrifice, Simeon, this is, this is earlier in chapter two, and Anna rejoice, and they testify, and they prophesy over Jesus. This is God's big yes over Jesus, prophecy fulfilled in keeping with God's word, his law. 
And finally, at the end of, of Luke 2, or at least right before our passage, verses 39 and 40, it says this, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Okay, end scene. The point is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The Messiah is who he says he is from the very beginning, all his life. Now, did all these things I just listed out, did they need to be done? Did they need to be done to fulfill the law? Did they have to be done? Now, that's kind of a yes, no answer. Uh, For our sake, 100% yes, these had to be done, okay? Jesus chose to be fully subject to the law. Did they need to be done for Jesus' sake, for his benefit? No, no. I want you to think of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, and I've talked about this before. The scriptures say this was necessary, quote, to fulfill all righteousness, which was another way of saying to satisfy the law which we are under. This wasn't done because Jesus needed to be cleansed or Jesus needed to repent, okay? That's not why he was baptized. It's another way of saying he did these things for us. That's part of him being subject to the law and purchasing things that we can't so that he then gives them back to us, righteousness, holiness. And this pattern is established from the very beginning of his life, even, quote, being born of a woman, just as all of us were. So no special pass for Jesus. As Galatians 4.4 says, he was born under the law just as we were, to redeem us from the darkness, to be the light of the world, okay? That's some backstory. I think that helps as we move into Luke 2, 41 through 52. This story talks about Jesus growing into manhood, adolescence. Now, we know almost nothing about Jesus growing up, after he's born, that is. There's a lot of time spent on his birth and right before he's born. Other than this one incident, which the good Dr. Luke relates to us about his adolescence. So if this, this is the one story that's scriptural, which it is, it must be pretty darn important, don't you figure? I think so. I think so. So he and his family are traveling to Jerusalem. Jews were required to attend three major festivals a year, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of the Tabernacles. So you'd make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, okay? Not easy when you're sort of scattered all over the Roman Empire. If you could come at all, it was usually annually, and Passover was kind of the biggie. So most attended uh, that as they were able. So Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they had to Passover. And incidentally, Only men were required to make this journey. So Mary's presence here shows us something of her commitment and something of her piety. And the fact that they brought Jesus with them speaks well of how they're raising him. Now Jerusalem was, get this, 80 miles from Nazareth. So that trip is three to four days each way, okay? But one of the things I want us to see here in this, the gospel passage is Mary and Joseph's commitment. I want you to see how devout and how pious they were. They regularly honored God's appointed ordinances, and they honored them as a family, okay? The distance from Nazareth to Jerusalem, as I said, was significant, 80 miles each way, and that's on foot. Don't know if they were able to travel by donkey or not, but still, that's a long journey, three to four days each way. And the journey, especially for poor people, which they were, was a true hardship. To leave house and home for two weeks was no slight expense. But God had given Israel a command, and Joseph and Mary, they faithfully obeyed it. God appointed these festivals for their spiritual good, and they regularly kept them by the numbers. So they went to Passover as a family. 
As for how they traveled, and by that I mean not uh, whether on a donkey or on foot, but the manner in which they traveled in large groups. So if you can imagine a traveling village, uh, probably much larger than what we have right here, that's not a bad way to think of it. So you would travel with family. You travel with extended family. You travel with your neighbors. You travel with your friends. This is a big group. And it's like everyone watching everyone else's kids. So different culture, more, far more communal than what we're used to. It's hard for us to, to grasp that. So if you can imagine your neighborhood or your subdivision walking somewhere together, that kind of gives you a sense of it. A caravan on pilgrimage, okay? The text notes that Jesus is 12, not yet 13, which was when a Jewish boy became a man, right? A son of the commandment. This is when you, your bar mitzvah happens, but that tradition actually came after Jesus. But when a boy's 11 or 12, the process of preparation would often begin, and it would be to ready him for this rite of passage. And what happens is he then, what the bar mitzvah, what's that, that ownership, that rite of passage is about, is he then assumes the responsibilities of his circumcision. He owns his faith, in other words almost identical to what happens in infant Christian baptism. You complete, we say that you complete your baptism through personal faith and repentance. And the way we typically mark that in the Anglican church is we confirm you. Okay? So the mention of Jesus' age, only 12, not yet 13, provokes a question about his spiritual maturity. Is he ready to own his faith? How mature is he? Well, let's, let's soldier forward and let's find out. After Passover is over, the caravan heads home, and after a time, they realize that Jesus isn't with them. Now, we may find this shocking, but again, if you think about how they traveled, it makes sense. Maybe he's in a different part of the caravan. Maybe he's with relatives. Maybe he's with neighbors. Not unusual. This isn't, um, it's just a different society. We have to get that into our heads. Sometimes the older children traveled at the front, followed by the women, followed by the men. So it isn't odd that he would not his absence wouldn't be noticed for a while. Not, un, not unusual. So after searching the caravan, not finding him, they go back to Jerusalem. And it says it takes them, I think it's a total of three days to find him. Some wonder if that's a wink, three days. Who knows? Uh, talk about parental anxiety and fearsome worry. When I was five or six, I got lost in the local mall for several hours. The uh, city police were out looking for me. I was there with my mom and my brother and my poor mother. Now, for me, I struck out on my own, and I had the time of my life. <laughs> I went to the toy store. I went to the magic shop. I had endless fun. I loved escalators, so, man, did I ride those escalators. I explored the mall. I played games and hid in the, the clothing racks. You know, you can kind of get in the middle of those as a kid. Uh, I found some pennies and was dropping them from the upper level onto playing bombardier on the people below. Um, and I finally tried to score some free candy, and I still remember cherry sours. I tried to score some free candy at the candy bar, and that is where they found me. That's where they flagged it. Now, I might have been having the time of my life, but parents put that hat on as if it ever comes off. Uh, can you imagine my poor mom's anxiety and her deep worry, thinking I had been kidnapped or something awful had happened to me. And I was only gone for a matter of a few hours, just a few hours. Think about poor Mary and Joseph, three days, three days. Mary is understandably anxious, upset, and she is worried. 
And after three days and much worry, they find Jesus where? Where do they find him? In the temple. They find him in the temple with the teachers of the law. They say he's listening and asking questions and answering questions. This teenager is different, okay? Possessing wisdom and maturity far beyond 12 years. He's wise enough to listen. And that's funny if you think about it, the son of God listening to men, ha. Uh, But he does, and he's asking questions. He's interacting with the rabbis of the day. Now remember, this is the, the spiritual capital, home to the best and the brightest in Jewish thought. And he's conversing and holding his own with them. It says they're amazed at Jesus's wisdom and maturity. Even at 12, Jesus stands on equal footing with the great rabbis of his time. That's saying something. Mary, understandably, upon finding him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That's an understatement, isn't it? And his reply, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Yeah, I bet they didn't. Now, these are Jesus' first spoken words in Luke. First words. So that means they're key. First thing we hear about Jesus' identity as a young man. A host of witnesses have already testified about his identity in Luke 1 and 2. But here Jesus speaks for himself for the first time. Now this is a literary climax if there ever were one. All right, And it shows the sense of mission and self-awareness that Jesus already has, even at 12. Jesus already has a unique relationship to God and a clear sense of his calling, one that transcends his relationship to mom and dad. Why, why were you searching for me? Where else would I be, he says essentially. And the way the exchange is worded, Jesus is honestly a little surprised. I had to be, or I must be, or it was necessary, or I ought to be in my father's house. Now, what, what does that mean, I had to be, or I must be in my father's house? There's a couple different ways to render the Greek the way it reads there. I don't think either is wrong, but there's two nuances it brings out. First one is, is sort of the sense of, uh, I must be about my father's affairs, okay? Sort of the affairs of his house. I must be about the things of the father's kingdom. Now that's good, that's true, it's a little vague. Uh, the second way you can render this is Jesus is saying he must be engaged in teaching God's ways. And the temple is the place where that happens, okay? So if Jesus is the Messiah, where else would he be? But in his father's house, even at only 12, okay? This is amazing, because he's ministering already. He's ministering already like the young priest Samuel. I find it kind of echoes some of that story. Also, in Jesus' first words here in Luke, notice, let me, let me draw your attention to some of the obvious. He calls God what? Father. He calls God Father. Well, that's a rather unique relationship, wouldn't you say? There's a Jewish midrash, and that's a spiritual discussion on the scriptures, which speculates that the Messiah would know God directly without any human assistance, no mediator, kind of like Abraham and Moses did. But Luke is saying that Jesus is far beyond Moses and Abraham. We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Jesus had a relationship to God shared by no other, ergo Jesus calling God my father. Now, Do you think when Mary and Joseph and the teachers of the law heard this, they might have been taken aback a little bit by him saying, I had to be in my father's house? 
I mean, that is such a close and an intimate term for one thing. And besides that, who spoke of God Almighty in this way? And forgive the obvious, but this means that Jesus is already claiming to be the Son of God. Another first in this passage. Jesus says a lot in those one or two sentences. And it shows us who Jesus is ultimately devoted to, where his bedrock allegiance lies, to God the Father. And it establishes a pattern of submission and co-mission with God the Father's purposes. That will play out throughout the rest of the Gospels. Jesus was clear here. He was clear. He understood his mission and his relationship to God. I'm going to say that again. He understood his mission and his relationship to God. If you think there's a relationship between those two things, you better believe it. Does that have import for us? Absolutely it does. Understand your relationship with God, have a depth to that. Guess what? That actually impacts mission. Absolutely. So from the very beginning, he's the living expression, the incarnation of God the Father's will. And he starts revealing himself right in the thick of things, right in Jerusalem, the holy city, the spiritual capital. These first recorded words of Jesus the Messiah are a recognition of his unique relationship to the Lord. But it says Mary and Joseph didn't understand this. As we read through the scriptures, we get the sense that they learned what Jesus' messiahship meant over time, kind of bit by bit, as it unfolded over the years. Despite Jesus being clear here, Joseph and Mary didn't grasp what he was saying. And honestly, if you read this, how could they? I mean, do we fault them for that? Or wouldn't you be in the same place? I certainly would be a bit baffled by what was going on. Story concludes with talking about them returning to Nazareth, Jesus the obedient son, proving his obedience both to his heavenly father and to his earthly parents, dot, 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 as a teenager. Take note, youth. How about that? And has this wonderful... Uh, description of Mary and sort of her introspection. Mary treasured these things. She pondered them. She stored up these things in her heart. She wondered about them. She chewed on them. She contemplated them. She treasured them in only the way a mom does. Moms, when you read that, don't you understand what it means? Do you understand that? That piece when it talks about her storing up things in her heart, treasuring those things? I see a certain, it's a very specific, uh, contented, and satisfied look in my mom's eyes or in my mother-in-law's eyes whenever the family's all together and everybody's under one roof again. And they have this look. It's just, it's a deep contentment. There's a treasuring, a pondering, sort of a storing up in a way that only a mother knows about kids and family. My mother-in-law in these moments will say, my heart is so full, you know? And you can tell, it's like she's recording the event. My heart is so full. No doubt this episode brought Mary back to her encounter with the angel Gabriel, the Annunciation, right? And the words spoken over Jesus' life that time. No doubt it reminded her of all the rejoicing and the prophecies spoken over him by Simeon and Anna earlier in Luke 2 at his presentation. I mean, what a great line. Mary treasured these things. She's pondered these things in her heart. And then the passage ends with a strong echo of Luke 2.40. Jesus continued to grow in stature and wisdom and favor with God and men. And this divine trajectory tells us who Jesus is becoming and will become in the next 20-ish years of his life where we're here next to nothing, which is where the story picks up later on in Luke and in the other Gospels. Okay, let's, let's, let's wrap things up here. When we hear these stories of Jesus growing up in all senses, 
we need to hear them. These aren't just, we need to hear them fully. They aren't just these interesting sort of anecdotal stories about, oh, by the way, you know, I want to share a little bit about Jesus as a, as a youth. It's, you need to see it as the long windup before the pitch, the growing momentum of his glory, the light coming into the darkness of our world. It establishes this divine trajectory that plays out the rest of Jesus' life. So it's foreshadowing in a big way, if you think of that, if you read uh, fiction or, or different books, it's foreshadowing. It shows us what's going to happen, who Jesus already is and who he's going to be. So there's immense uh, consistency there. Now, not only has the light come into the world, that's something to celebrate, that's why we have 12 days of Christmas, but it's getting brighter. Now, that's the promise of this particular brief season of Christmas tide. No matter how dark it gets, the darkness of the world, the darkness of your life, the darkness of your circumstances, et cetera, et cetera, the darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. Can't. In fact, the darker it becomes, the more fierce the light of Jesus becomes. Tolkien said this, you've probably heard this, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. And right before Christmas, it's literally the darkest night of the year. Do you know that? It's like December 21st, 22nd, somewhere in there, darkest night of the year. And then right after that, here comes Jesus. And from then on, the light only grows. It only gets lighter. It only gets lighter. Hope grows. Light grows. There is hope, even in the worst of circumstances. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the light of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people said together, amen.